Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything factor meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey, I'm Paul Stevenson, and this is episode 92 of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast with a new episode released every single day. You get an extended interview like this one every Monday and short four or five minute daily episodes Tuesday through Sunday on a show that I call This Day Rocks. Loads of classic rock content for classic rock fans. Now, today's interview is with a man with an incredible voice and an incredibly diverse mix of music, from working with the Bee Gees to Richie Blackmore, Ingve Malmsteen and Stevie Vai. I am, of course, talking about the brilliant singer Graham Bonnet. Of course, he fronted Rainbow, he fronted Alcatraz, he fronted Michael Schenker's group, and he is still going strong today. He's a real storyteller as well, with a big smile and a great wit in his delivery. It's a longer interview, so I hope you really do enjoy it. But first, as always, a quick plea to make sure you're following Vintage Rock Pod on the social media channels. If you're on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, whatever you're active on, just search for Vintage Rock Pod and press the follow or like button or whatever it's called on whichever one you use. And if you can, hit like, leave a comment, or share the posts as well, because it helps to spread the word of the podcast, and it may show up in other people's feeds and pique their interest too. We get more listeners on the podcast that way. It really does help. Also, check out the Vintage Rock Pod YouTube channel for videos with these classic rock stars. You get to see them all. Plus, you take part in the daily poll along with a couple thousand other people as well. Again, just search for Vintage Rock Pod and hit subscribe. It's absolutely free on YouTube. And finally, check out Pantheon Podcasts. It's the network for music fans. The Vintage Rock Pod is a proud part of it. So many great shows on there. I think there must be, what, 100 great podcasts on there. There's something for everyone, so please do check them out. It's Pantheon Podcasts and have a scroll through all the brilliant podcasts that are on there. Anyway, back to Graham Bonnet then. We delve deep into the captivating journey of Graham Bonnet's career. We begin by exploring his early days, including his breakout hit going top 10 in the UK with the Marbles and the stories behind the scenes with the Bee Gees that propelled him towards stardom. Of course, we discussed that fateful moment when Bonnet joined the legendary band Rainbow, led by none other than the guitar virtuoso Richie Blackmore. We uncover the fascinating tale of how this collaboration came to be, and of course, the infamous story that Blackmore likes to tell about Graham cutting his hair. 
But that's not all. We go beyond the headlines and we dig into the heart of the matter, find out the real reasons behind Bonnet's departure from the band and the challenges he faced. We talk about his great solo album and his time starting Alcatraz and working with Ingve and the bus stop which led to Ingve leaving and then him recruiting Steve Vai too. Plus, the conversation doesn't stop there. We also explore Graham Bonnet's new music, giving you an exclusive glimpse into his latest projects and what lies ahead for this iconic rock singer. So please, enjoy this brilliant conversation with a great rock vocalist, Graham Bonnet. Let's go back to uh, 1968 then, first of all. The Marbles. I'd love to hear about this song because this isn't something that many people remember or know about, to be honest with you. You had a big hit, Only One Woman, didn't you? You got top five in the UK. So tell us a little bit about how that came around. Well, it was because, uh, well, my cousin used to be in the Bee Gees. My, my cousin and I lived together when... It sounds weird, this. My cousin's parents went to Australia, took him to Australia. My uncle was a bricklayer. So in the summertime in Australia, he went to their summer. Then he would come back to our summer, the British summer. And uh, one day um, they decided that they should probably leave uh, my cousin Trevor with my mom and dad and me. That's what happened. Anyway, uh, my cousin Trevor, Trevor Gordon, he was guitar player in the Bee Gees when he lives in Australia. And uh, so... We we were you know we were rehearsing in uh, Skegness by the sea, and my cousin said we should move. We've got to get down to London. So we went to London. All five of us, I think we were, and um, we played in a place called the Revolution Club in London. And um, what happened was, in the audience was the Bee Gees' old manager. And after the show was over, he came over to Trevor and said, "Hey, Trevor," and my cousin goes, "Oh." Uh, I think his name is Ozzy or something. He said, hey, Ozzy, how are you? And he said, uh, hey, I'm sure the boys would like to see you again. The brothers, you know, the BG brothers. <laughs> the <laughs> brothers. And uh, so he gave Trevor um, Barry's telephone number, and my cousin Trevor went down that to, uh, next day to meet up with Barry. And uh, what Barry and the other boys wanted to do was uh, start with the left off, and begin with the left off kind of thing, when Trevor left the band, so to speak, because he didn't come to England until much later. They moved to England and became sort of famous. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm doing this all backwards a bit, but anyway, it'll make sense. I think I am. Anyway, he said um, uh, to Barry, said, um, my cousin's a singer too. And so um, Barry said, um, well, bring him along uh, tomorrow or whatever. And so a couple of days later, me and my cousin and I, we went um, down to uh, Barry's house and uh, we started singing, playing our guitars and singing Stevie Wonder and whatever, you know, Beach Boys and Beatles and everything you can imagine, which was great. All this harmony coming out there with those boys. My God, it was great. And in the room was Robert Stigwood, who was the PG's manager, and said um, to Barry, Barry, do you have a, a song for these boys? And Barry said, no. <laughs> he said, I'd like to have them in the studio within the next week or two. And that's how we kind of started. The marbles began there. And uh, so Barry had this la la tune. He lied to me. He plays guitar. And, nah, 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 nah. You know, he, he lied uh, la la this tune to me. And uh, uh, anyway, we went into the studio and I did a quick um, da, da 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 da. You know, and my cousin says, Graham, instead of going down on that particular note, why don't you go up? And Barry said, Oh, it's a great idea. So the melody was changed by my cousin. You little bugger. <laughs> so it went up. You know, so it went up to a uh, C sharp. So, it was, so it didn't go da 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 da. That it was all that in that same uh, register. 
So it went da 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 da. So that was the beginning of only one woman. And my cousin is, uh, I guess, songwriter for that a little bit. But that's how it started. So in a couple of days, Barry wrote some uh, words, and we went in and uh, recorded only one woman with that extra put in there. And uh, thank you, Trevor. My cousin passed away a few years ago, um, and uh, it's uh, he was found in his uh, apartment, which was. Uh, yeah, anyway, uh, he passed, I think, five years ago. And uh, he was the one that got me into playing guitar and everything, you know, when we were kids, when we were 11 or whatever. But that's how we started. It's um, kind of the marbles was born in uh, Barry Gibbs' uh, house. Wow, phenomenal stuff. I'm very sad to hear that your cousin's passed away. Now, as you said, so that was a top five hit, and then you had another hit after that. So from, from that kind of roots in the Bee Gees, and you, you were more kind of R&B as well at this sort of stage just before then. So when you were approached by Rainbow, obviously a rock band and Wizards and Fairies and all this sort of stuff, at this stage, when you were approached by them, you didn't actually know anything about them, did you? You had no idea who they were. No, no, I had not. I, uh, my manager said to me, there's this band called Rainbow would like to, uh, you know, audition you, for, for, you know, to be their new singer. And I said, Rainbow, I thought, you sound like a folk group. Like, Rainbow, da, da. You know, it sounds like a folk group almost. And he said to me, well, my manager said to me, well, they used to be Deep Purple. Now they've changed the name. Uh, Roger Glover is still playing bass, and Richard Blackmore is guitar player. They changed the name to Rainbow. So uh, what happened was he wanted to send me over to uh, Switzerland on the, and um, where they were recording. And uh, he said, you better learn some of their songs. And then, anyway, he got in touch with me and said, learn this one. It's called Mistreated. And I learned that one song, and I went over for the audition. And um, to make a short story even longer, <laughs> they, said, they gave me the job. But what, what happened was I was so scared of, um, you know, you fucking know, up, to put it mildly, uh, on this song. I thought, well, I, I won't sing it on microphone. I will sing it off mic. So the mic was over there somewhere. You know, hey, you know, and the band was playing very loud. And I sang the thing, and when it was over, they, they were all laughing. And I thought, oh, crap, was it really that bad? <laughs> they stared at me and said, yeah, let's do it again. And okay, and then we did it again. I was still off microphone. Then, <laughs> then, right, then um, Don said, uh, Don Neary said, uh, Graham, how about this time you, you know, sing on mic this time? So <laughs> time through, I sang on microphone. They, they were just overjoyed. You said, you're the guy. You know, and anyway, I went wow. to England saying to my manager that I didn't think I was right because this wasn't what I was used to singing. You know, I do not R&B, pop, whatever. Not like this, which is sort of semi-classical sounding uh, music, you know, very, very sort of heavy, sort of heavy for back then. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he said, no, you've got to do this to be good for your career. It was good for his wallet. Uh, my career, <laughs> I'm not sure. No, it didn't. No, it was great for my career. I mean, I got um, I got a lot of recognition because I did join Rainbow, and uh, I thank Richie Blackmore for taking me in and the guys. I, I you know, it was uh, such a great, great journey, and I'm so so, so. so, so how did how did it happen then? Because obviously you, you weren't spotted singing rock songs and things like that so so what was it that i'm guessing richie uh, had heard or seen what what was it that, that picked you out of the crowd then oh it, well it's because of that song only one woman um okay. they were playing a game uh you know spot the tune you know, i had the cassette machine there and Cozy was playing spot the tune but right, who's this 
then who's this? Then who's this? And uh, my song and my cousin's song came up. And uh, Richie said to uh, Tozy, what's he doing now? Do you know this guy? Oh, I heard he lost his voice. Oh, okay. Then so he's not, not working anymore. Then Roger Glover chimed in and said, well, no, he, he hasn't lost his voice. He's managed by the same management as, uh, as uh, who am I thinking of? Oh, Mickey Moody. And Mickey Moody was recording with Roger Glover, White Snake, the first beginning, the beginnings of White Snake. And we we're managed by the same uh, management company. He said, no, no, he's working with my manager, David Oddie. So anyway, I was, uh, you know, they picked me out to come audition. So it was, uh, I didn't know what to expect. And I, I just didn't think I was right for the band. But uh, anyway, I went back again and we started recording. And it was, uh, I was like, oh, crap, what do I do here? So Roger said to me, look, I'll help you through with some of the melodies and then I'll write the words. I said, okay, that's good for me. And so Roger wrote the words and he gave me a, a brief outline of the, of the melodies and I would sing it my way, I'd interpret it, you know, whichever way I wanted, you know. A bit like the only one woman, really. Sort of ad lib, I'm going, off you go. And it's, 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 all my, it's all my cousin's fault, but the C sharp and, and a, a D even comes into all my songs ever since. <laughs> wow. So anyway, but that's kind of how it all began, and um, it was it was a lot of fun. Roger taught me a lot. Roger Glover was a great a great teacher and um, great producer, apart from anything else, and songwriter. So um, we made the album in that way. Um, Roger will give me a rough idea how the melody should probably go with the lyric written. And um, I would just add live and, you know, no, not that one, not that one. Oh, this one, this one. <laughs> so we recorded each one. Each song was recorded four times. And uh, uh, Rich would come in and uh, he would pick out which one he liked best. You know, oh, no, 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 this one. Oh, it's not as good as the other. Anyway, that's how we did every song. So it took a long, bloody time to record yeah. because it was all kind of ad lib. And, oh, this one, that one. No, no, no. no. You know, but I like that one best. But it was... Uh, it was a great learning uh, uh, tool for me. It really was. And uh, I thank Rich and I thank Roger so much, the well, whole man, really, for uh, putting me in that position of uh, being a student of um, sort of heavy rock, I guess, which I wasn't. But um, now I guess I am. <laughs> and let, let's be honest there's not many better people to be learning from than the, the names you're talking about there Richie Blackmore and Roger Glover and Don Airy and, and Cozy Powell obviously I mean yeah. you went into a group of superstars really didn't you oh my god I mean how could you fail in such a band I mean I, I, I said you know afterwards when we went on stage I would say how do you feel when you walk in front of you know 20,000 people above the hell I said well I always felt comfortable with the band no matter how shitty I felt once I walked out on stage and those guys were behind me, how could it fail? If I, if I croaked or messed up in a song, it didn't matter. <laughs> you know, these guys were so good, you know, but I never felt, I never felt nervous. I always felt uh, excited about going on stage with them because they were so damn good. And uh, yeah. as I said, how could you fail? Cozy, Don Airy, Roger Glover, Richie Blackmore. Come on, you know. The best. Indeed. Indeed. I was lucky Absolutely. enough at that particular time. Yeah. Absolutely. And you mentioned the fact that obviously it was a change for you, but it was a change for the band as well and in, in kind of direction. And let's be honest, people, people, us humans, we, we don't deal traditionally well with change. So did you get any negative feedback or anything like that during the early time of, of your, your being in the oh. band? 
Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, uh, oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, at, at first, yes. I remember um, the very first show we did was in a, an arena somewhere. I can't remember what city it was in. But it was in, in the States. And uh, there are some guys down front of the stage who were like heckling me and go, oh, get up. We were, Ronnie, Ronnie. You know, calling out for Ronnie. Ronnie, do you? Uh, I expected it anyway, you know. I mean, Ronnie was a great singer, you know, bless his heart, you know, wherever he may be. And um, they were doing all this, you know, they, I couldn't concentrate. And uh, Richie looked at me and he started playing this D chord in a very ding, 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 arpeggio. And I knew what that song was. It was a song called Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow? <laughs> so I went and sat down on the stage in front of these guys I looked him straight in the eye and said, tonight you're mine completely. <laughs> and they started laughing. And from that moment on, I was in. I was part of the gang. You know, so it, uh, it shows that I was a human being and I didn't mind make, being made fun of, if you like, whatever. You know, shouting out, get your bloody hair cut, whatever it may be, you know. 
And <laughs> I was the only short-haired guy in the band, for Christ's sake. But anyway, that from that day on, I felt very comfortable about going on stage and not being heckled, you know, for some reason. It was just that one night, the first night, you know. Wow. Was, you know, no racket for me because first damn night, I was cozy with so nervous. I'll never forget that. He kept going to the bathroom. Oh, gee, what's he doing? You know, I go for a piss again. I go for a... Oh, really? And he said, Great, Graham, you're going to be all right. I said, Are you? <laughs> you <probably laughs> more nervous than I was. But anyway, then very successfully after that uh, little confrontation with those guys. And they were they were so nice after that, you know. They were laughing and going, All right, bud, you're okay. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the, the the record Down to Earth, it was a, a huge hit here in the UK. In fact, it was it was a, a higher charting album than any of the previous Rainbow records that had come before it, which is fantastic. I mean, all night long, it's a classic, but we're going to talk about um, Since You've Been Gone. I mean, it, it's world famous. It's It's got a legacy as well to it. And I, I saw recently you posted on your social media about the fact that it had been used on the, the trailer for the, the upcoming Guardians of the Galaxy movie, which means it, it lives on. It's, it's finding new audiences now as well, isn't it? Yeah, I, I guess, yeah, a lot of people have, uh, oh, I took my kids to see this, and uh, when we heard your voice, we told them who you were, you know, all that is come, coming out now, and it's so, it's it's a great, fucking great, I mean, I don't know how how much will help my career, but but it's so nice to hear that song on a bit, you know, on a, a movie, you know, fantastic, and um, I was very surprised when uh, Bethany, my girlfriend, she said, listen to this, listen to this, Guardians of the Galaxy uh, promo. She said, what, 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 what? And she played and said, that's, that's me. She said, yeah, I know. <laughs> so the rest is history, I suppose. We'll see what he does. I hope I do gather more, you know, younger viewers and listeners, whatever, from that. But uh, their parents or their grandparents are saying, that's, I know him. He is, he's, uh, <laughs> it's our Graham from Skegness. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I, I don't know if it will help, but it's a great honour to be part of that movie. Because they're so those movies are so popular. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And in terms of the song itself, I mean, take me back to that that time in the recording studio. As you said, you were you were doing three or four versions of the song. Can you of, of all the songs on the album? Sorry. So in terms of that one, can you remember getting it down? And was there a general consensus about which one was going to work because it is such a classic? Oh, with that, you see, with since you've been gone, that was already written. So uh, you know, uh, we heard it'd been recorded. I think four times before we did it. And okay. the, the version I heard was by a band called um, Clout, which was a girl band. And I heard this and nobody liked it. I mean, I remember Chloe's going, oh, we're not going to do, do that. Like, oh, shit. You know, it was, <laughs> nobody liked it because it was very, very, very popular. Yeah, I remember the uh, the way they did it was since you've been gone. It wasn't whatever I did. It was very, very sort of uh, you know, very light and airy, don airy. And so it um had to be changed a little. And I I love that the way that guitar starts the song off. That's Richie Blackmore 100 percent That sound here, yeah, identifiable. You know, and uh, so we made it a little heavier, but not too much, you know. So instead of going, I went, you know, whoa, 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 you know. And um, we were encouraged by our management by uh, Bruce Payne. He said, that's fucking good. That's good. That's it. This is it. This is it. We're going to get radio play now. And that's the reason it's done. 
began to, you know, be more radio friendly, which it became, uh, you know, here in the States and all over the place, you know. So good move, you know. Nobody likes it, but then after that, we all liked it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I bet, I bet. Um, and just something that you've, you've asked a million times, I'm, I'm sure you do, and you mentioned it just a, a few minutes ago as well, the, the famous haircut thing, um, the very famous video of, of Richie talking about the haircut and, and having you locked in a room and you, sn- you snuck out to go yeah. and get your haircut and then he was he was raging with you and that's one of the reasons he fired you and all this sort of stuff. And I know you've rubbished it over the years, but can you tell us a little bit more yeah. about that famous story? Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> he's embellished that story a bit. He's adding to it every time I hear it. I'm surprised that story is still travelling along all, after all these years. <laughs> what actually happened was we were in, I can't remember, what, maybe even in Scotland, I think, actually. And uh, I was with my ex-wife and uh, my hair was getting like this, like it is now. I've been off the road for so long. We go back on the road in, in a month. But I didn't have my hair cut when I was off the road, you know. And you could see, but I fucking... Pony cell back there. Anyway, so I was walking around the city with her. I think it was Edinburgh. And um, my hair was quite as long as this. And I said to her, I said, I'm going to get a haircut while you go and uh, shop, you know. So I went to get a haircut. And that was it. That's all That's all I did. And um, there was no guard on the door or anything like that. In fact, I saw our road manager, uh, I say, about three months ago. And we were talking to him and laughing about that story. So he said, I wasn't put on the door to guard you. I said, I know, I know, but isn't that a great story? So, so I, I just done my haircut. And um, so I walk out on stage that night. You know, Richie hadn't seen me all day. We never saw each other all day. It was always just showtime. That's when we all see it, saw each other. And uh, I would sort of come on last. You know, they're doing the intro to a song called Eyes of the World, the intro song. And I come, you know, running on. And he looks at me and he goes, and he disappeared. He went behind the amps. He went behind the stack <laughs> and didn't come out. And he played there all night. And next day, we had uh, Richie called a meeting. He said, um, you know, I want to see everybody in my room. We all went to his room in the holiday and somewhere. And um, we walk in and everybody said, what is it? What's the matter? You know, he thought it was something really serious. And he looks at me and he goes, it's Graham's hair. And everybody burst out laughing. You're like, what? <laughs> you called a meeting about that, you know. And uh, Cozy just said, oh, you know, you can imagine what he said. <laughs> Give me a fucking break. And everybody else said, what, what about his hair? You know, well, he had it cut. I thought he was being mean to me, you know. I thought he was insulting me by having his hair cut because I'm always saying his hair's too short. And he always did. He always said, well, yeah, it's a bit short, you know. And because everybody else in the band had longish hair. It wasn't long, long. It was longish. Uh, and so uh, that was the meeting. Everybody just thought he was a complete fool. And uh, but Richie blessed him. He asked for that story, as I said. Every time I've seen that interview or another interview, it brings that up. And it's, uh, it's magical. Because I didn't know what I did that day, but he's telling me what I did. You know, <laughs> guard on the door, and I I went out the window, uh, and then what happened? You know, I'm waiting for something. You know, he hit by a car, but he still kept. <laughs> you know what I mean? He adds a little bit, but um, I think it's good just going out the window is uh, good enough because we're like seven floors up, you know, so you know, you're out the window. You know, 
uh, Tying the bed sheets together, yeah, that's it. A fucking parachute, you know. <laughs> but, but it's um, Richie, bless him. I know, I know. After that, you know, I know he loves me. I love him too, you know. And uh, after that, everything calmed down at the head. Whatever, you know. You know, <laughs> have a fucking, you know, your head shaved. You know, it was okay after that. <laughs> Fantastic, love that story. And you mentioned in there that you love Richie and, and he loves you. I mean, he's he's got a reputation, obviously, as being one of the greatest guitarists of all time, but as well as being someone that can be difficult at times. That's probably a nice way of putting it. So, so what was your memories of of, of working with Richie? What, what what's your relationship like with him? Well, if that was the most difficult thing I had was a haircut. Oh well, there you musically, go. no damn problem at all. You know, he was uh, always, uh, Brian, what do you think of this? You know, I, he'd always, when he and Roger worked together, you know, Richard would be playing his guitar. I remember one night um, he came in and he said to me, uh, do you know that Rolling Stones song? Um, oh, crap. No, I can't remember what it is. <laughs> um, uh, one second, I'll get in there. Out of time. It's a song called Out of Baby, 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 you're out of time. He said, I've got this idea, you know, this idea is sort of like that, you know, da 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 Because the melody is the same as a, as a, that song, All Night Long. Because yeah. you thought you were a clever girl. Oh, and, then you're da, da, da. Yeah. and Chris Farlow did it, a guy called Chris Farlow. And he, that was a hit record in England, I seem to remember. And he said, he said you know, so I said, okay, well, I'll make up a melody around that. And that's what happened with that, you know. But we always got on pretty good, you know. Uh, and that was uh, just one moment where he said, he said, well, you, you can make something up of this. Roger will write the words. You know, and it's pretty much a, a complete rip off the melody-ish, sort of. It's not exactly the same, but, uh, you know. <laughs> I don't think uh, the Rolling Stones would mind. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that was a hit record again. We did very well with that song. Yeah. But he was uh, always very open to me. And before every show, he would say, uh, hey, what time are you going to come down to my dressing room? I said, well, what time are we on? Oh, we're on at eight. So we'll come down about, you know, 22 or eight. And I go down and I sit with him. And he said, uh, what can we do tonight to fuck everybody up? <laughs> Probably <laughs> something we could do. To, yeah, uh, and I remember one night he said, "What we should have after a cozy, astonishing drum solo, we should come out with uh, you know cards, you know seven out of ten, you know, all like that, <laughs> you know, just, just for a laugh." And that's what we did one night. That was one joke we played on cozy. We go, well, you know, we're all walking across the stage with these numbers, which was kind of kind of funny. You had to be there, I think. It, it was a funny moment. But little things like that we would uh, make up, you know, and uh, I can't remember some of the other things, but that's one I particularly remember because we all just went walking across the set. It was so funny because his drum solo is like epic. I mean, just amazing, you know. So every night, uh, nine out of ten, oh, I don't know, you don't take the nine, you you take the nine, you know. But bless his heart, he was, uh, he could take a joke and he could take a joke, just like I can. We all could. Fantastic. You can't be too serious in this. And I know everybody's like, oh, you know, snails, you know, the heavy metal thing. But it's not really like that. What we're doing is we're playing a different person when we go on stage. We really are. You know, yeah. Two different people. Yeah. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And and then the, the fact that you had uh, the big album, you had the, the two big singles off the album, big records, everyone, everyone remembers them. But despite all that, it kind of all fell apart by the time the second album for you kind of came around, didn't it? And that's that was what kind of left you, well, made you made the decision to leave the band. Yeah, well, we, we were rehearsing in uh, Copenhagen trying to write the next album. And um, we had a new drummer because Koji had left. So we had this new drummer with this huge fucking hairdo and uh, talk about hair. And uh, we, we would go to this rehearsal room and some days there'd be like two people there. Another day there'd be three of us there. One day there'd be just me there. Nobody was interested, especially Richie. And we're supposed to be, you know, making up new songs for the new album. And uh, I think the laziness was because we had a song from Russ Ballard again, uh, yeah. a song called I Surrender. And that's the only song we had. And uh, I said to Roger Glover, I said, well, what are we going to do? We haven't got anything. He said, well, we've got I Surrender, the Russ Ballard tune. He said, do you want to go in and do the backing harmony? I said, yeah, get, we'll start there at least. So I went in and did some backing harmonies, which weren't used in the end, I don't think. Uh, and that was kind of it. I didn't do a lead vocal on it at all. And uh, it was very, uh, not very, it wasn't productive at all. Because uh, Richie wasn't coming in and showing us what to do, you know. And uh, some some days he would. And uh, anyway, it just got to like, well, what the fuck are we, what are we doing? You know, we had nothing. And time was passing by. And, you know, the, the album started recording like yesterday. And, uh, okay, well, we got, got to I Surrender. Yeah, okay. Well, what else have we got? So, you know, be sitting looking at each other. And Don says, Don Aries says, I'm going to go home. Oh, no, don't go home. Right? Come on. No, no, Don, we, I need you here because I, you know, me and Don are very, me, me and Don and Cozy, very close, three musketeers. And when Cozy was gone, it was like, oh, kidding me. Anyway, Don says, I'm going. I don't, I don't like the new, the new, you know, the drummer and everything. It's just Cozy's gone. It's not the same. And nobody's turning up for rehearsal anyway. So uh, he said, I'm going to go home. And I said, well, um, if you go home, Don, I'll go home too, because I'm not finding this very interesting or exciting or what either. Nothing's happening. So I went home, and he didn't. <laughs> he, he stayed. He said, you bastard. You bloody man. So he stayed. And I thought, I, I said to him, I thought you were going to leave. And he, anyway, he didn't. And uh, I got a phone call from uh, our manager, the band manager, who said, well, are you coming back for him? I said, no, I, I want to do something else. And I thought Don was going to leave. Don's still with the band, yeah? Yes, he's still with the band. He said, well, I said, well, I don't, uh, I don't know what to do. He said, well, we found another singer. And if you come in and sing the song you'd like and let this other singer sing the song you don't like, whatever that means, and uh, we'll go that way. I said, no, that, that doesn't work. Two singers in Rainbow. No, I can't, I can't see that, you know. And uh, so I left the band. I wasn't fired, although people like to think I was <laughs> because I had another haircut or something. <laughs> or oh, come out the bathroom wet hair. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, yeah, so um, that, that was it for me. And uh, I found a guy in L.A., uh, a guy called Andy Truman, who had a good um, reputation. He managed Jethro Tull, the bass leader rollers, uh, a bunch of different people, you know, all different uh, genre. 
And uh, my one of my friends introduced me to him, and he took over management. And so he said, well, Graham, what you should do is get yourself a band together. And that's how Alcatraz was formed in my garage. Calabasas. And uh, that took a while, too. But that's what I wanted to do, was form my own band uh, that was similar to Rainbow, have the same kind of lined up keyboards, guitar, you know, bass, you know, yeah. that kind of line. And that's what happened then, you know. Indeed, and let's just talk about that because the album lineup came out and it had a huge song on it again. I mean, Night Games, I absolutely love that song. Big hit here in oh, the UK. Yeah. And it was was Ed, Edwin Hamilton, I think, wrote that one. So it tells yeah. about that song in particular because I love okay. that song. Yeah, that was before I did the Alcatraz thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Ed, Ed wrote that and um, I thought it's great. I've got the, uh, I got a tape handed to me in New York, I remember. My manager was over. I don't know what I was doing, something about it. And um, I think I was on my way to Australia or something. Anyway, he um, he uh, presented this uh, cassette. <laughs> Remember those folks? <laughs> he presented, he put it on your cassette machine. <laughs> and I said, that, oh, that's fucking good. I thought that immediately. It was in my head. It's like an immediate song, you know? It was so, yeah. I recorded it and it did pretty well. And then that did very well indeed. Yeah. <laughs> but just in terms of that, that that solo stuff then I mean because you, you did line up the album came out and again it, it charted well over here in the UK but you had some incredible musicians involved in that I mean guys from Status Quo Francis Rossi and Rick Parfit and, and Cozy was involved and John Lord was involved and um, Mickey Moody as we, we spoke about earlier Whitesnake and things like that you had all these people I think Russ Ballard was involved as well I mean how did all that kind of happen how did you get all them people together for it? well because of uh, management uh, managing uh, you know uh, uh, Mickey Moody, um, you know, he knew John Lord, John, you know, it's all of yeah. nepotism, something like that. I think it's called nepotism. I'm not quite sure if it is nepotism. Is it? I don't know. But uh, we all, everybody knew each other or, you know, whatever. And so John Lord comes in and blah, blah, blah. Of course, Cozy. Who, who else? Who else would play from? And um, we had uh, different ideas about bass players, I seem to remember. But uh, I was just lucky to know all these musicians. They came in and they made a freaking great album. It was a, such a treat to go into the studio every day or every other day and uh, just sit with those guys and go, okay, what we're going to do now? And then Russ, then Russ Ballard came in, who wrote to us yeah. Gone, and uh, he had a couple of songs on the album that were written for me. Uh, but uh, I always remember John coming in, John Lord, and uh, we're all sitting in our little spaces, you know, you know, without battle boards. I was sitting yeah. on the little thing, little like, you know, you know, the boards are blah, 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 drums over there, blah, 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 like that. And I'm sitting there and I look over and I, John wasn't, I said, where's John? And uh, Mickey said, I don't know, he's, I think he's gone to the shop. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm sitting there waiting and I hear this rattling of bottles. <laughs> and John, John comes in, you know, he's got his uh, baffle there. Yeah. Gentlemen, the bar is open. It's like night in the friendly morning. <laughs> but the bar was definitely open. <laughs> we were all by bloody 12. You know, it, was, it was amazing. But uh, no, we weren't shit based, but it did help a little. We, we got on so well, and I'm very proud of that album. I really am. Yeah. I'll never forget John coming in and doing that. It's etched in my memory. It really is. 
Fantastic memories, fantastic memories. And then just quickly touching on Alcatraz, as you said, you, you had some fantastic records and, and music with them. But um, a couple of guitarists you worked with in there, a young Ingve, I think he was a teenager at the time, was involved. And then Steve Vai came in as well. I mean, incredible names. I mean, talk to me about each of those guys and what they were like to play with and work with and what were they like as people? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, Ricky, uh, uh, Ricky, uh, Ingve was, yeah, he was 19. And um, you're looking for, I've got a bass player and a keyboard player of sorts together. And still, no, I had a drummer at that time. And uh, some, one of the guys in the band said, we've heard from this guy in the shop, there's a really good bass player. They're in a record shop or something. A really good uh, guitar player. Uh, a young kid called Ingley. What? And <laughs> what? What's his name? <laughs> so um, I got his number. I called him up and I said, would you like to come to, uh, you know, uh, to audition with us? And he said, who is this? <laughs> Who's making a fucking joke with me? You know? <laughs> I said, no, no, this this really is me. You know, you know it's Graham. It's, this, it's the real Graham. And he uh, says, oh no, is it? You know. Anyway, we we told him about where the rehearsal room was, and I remember he was with his friends in the car. I guess all ready to drive away, having a joke pulled on him. And um, he was sitting there. And he looked out the car and went, oh. This was when he liked me. <laughs> <laughs> it got worse as, as, as the days went on. But, um, you know, it was, uh, he, he came, he walked into the uh, uh, rehearsal room and I asked him to play a song that wasn't a rainbow song. It was my song from uh, my album. It was um, SOS, a song called SOS, from the lineup album. Because yeah. I wanted to see what he would do with it. You know, I didn't want to go, I, I didn't want to wheedly wheedly. And he came and he probably played the balls out. It's so fuck. And I looked at the guy, this is the guy. Then we did some, you know, heavy stuff, man. You know, snails came out, you know. So we did some heavier stuff. And he was just perfect, absolutely perfect. I mean, he just did not miss a note. He plays like so fast and everything, but what he played was soulful, you know. And most really Wiggly's, they play. They just play to show you their scale. I know I'll do a scale in C minor or whatever, you know. And but this guy had a feel, and that's what I liked about him. Because we, we'd already auditioned a bunch of other people, and it wasn't the same. But Ingbe, he was just magic. And how could you fail with such a great player? And I went to look around for a better keyboard player and a better bass player, but I wasn't satisfied with that. Uh, but um, Anyway, that, that doesn't matter now. So we made um, we made our first album, and uh, that's when uh, Ingve became a star, really, from that album. Everybody loved him. You know, you just uh, I remember we were on, we were on tour with uh, Ted, Ted Nugent. And, okay. Yeah, I remember Ted coming into, after the first, first gig, I remember Ted coming into the dressing room after our show, all, you know, and um, he said, he walked in and goes, don't lose this guy. Pointed wing back. But he's pretty cool too. So that's uh, how that started, you know. And, uh, you know, that that's a great album. We did it pretty quickly. I wasn't too excited about the production. But um, anyway, um, that was our first album that got a lot of recognition. Yeah. Alcatraz. Absolutely. 
That's one for Alcatraz, yeah. And in terms of Ingve, then, because obviously he was getting a lot of the, a lot of the limelight, wasn't he, at this stage? So, so with him leaving after the first record, was that because his his kind of his star was shining bright, and he wanted to go and, and chase that, or yeah. was it you decided to move him on, or what? What happened there? Yeah, well, he, he was looking for something better because he wasn't too thrilled with the other guys in the band either, like I was. Okay, you know, I I was looking for somebody who was like a real shit keyboard player, a really shit bass player, which I didn't find. Or we've got somebody who would do because we have to make this record. And um, so, you know, um, he, yeah, I mean, he knew people were watching every night he went on stage. There was this kid do all this and that. You know, people are aghast. You know, how does he do that? I mean, I mean, now it's like commonplace. Everybody bloody plays like that now. But, you know, he's out there. He's taller than me by about four inches, I think. And he had his high heels on his Cuban boots, Cuban heel boots. And uh, he would But he started doing that while I was trying to sing a verse of a song. Okay. I, uh, uh, Ingve, you know, when I, after the show, you know, when I get to this bit, let, I've got to have the stage here. This is my bit. This is where I'm singing the, the verse, yeah. whatever, or the, whatever it may be. But he was playing through everything because people were looking at him. He, he wanted to be seen. And, I thought, well, this guy's going to go. He's looking to, uh, to go on to something else, which eventually happened. Because what happened one night, uh, I don't know if you heard the story, but he grabbed me. I, I went off stage and he grabbed, I went off to the, to the bus and he came off stage and grabbed me by the throat and started pressing in, in here. Like it's really okay. trying to destroy my tonsils and whatever else. And I was going, like, what, what are you doing? What are you, doing? you said, you fucking bastard. You pulled my fucking cord out of my guitar when I drew my lead. And I didn't at all. I didn't know. I actually walked off stage and had pulled it out by accident. Because, you know, was, the stage was dark and the spotlight was on him. And I'd gone off to the bus, you know, just to get some air sort of thing. And he thought I did it on purpose, which I didn't. And uh, so he tried to kill me, basically. And it was, it was, you know, it could destroy my vocal cords and my tonsils, whatever. As you said, you're bigger than me. And um, then our Yugoslavian, one of our Yugoslavian roadies, I remember him so well, bless him, he, he died not so long ago. And um, he's, he got hold of him, he got hold of him by the head, put him under his arm like this, and said, you fucking touch Graham one more time, I break up his neck. <laughs> and he went, okay. Because he was stronger and bigger than him. Yeah. So that night when we're driving home, we fired him on the bus. So that was the end of it. Wow. But uh, he went on to better things. He progressed, whereas we went down the shit. The band went down the shit for a while, you know. Mm, indeed. So, so following him, we have to mention Steve Vai as well. I mean, another incredible guitarist. I mean, how did you find him? How did you bring him into the group? Yeah, well, that... Um, that came through our drummer, uh, Jan Yuvina. He played with Alice Cooper, and so did, uh, well, Ingve. I mean, Ingve, bloody hell, I'm getting the names right in a minute. <laughs> not Ingve, not Ingve. He knew Steve Vai from, uh, from, from uh, Zappa, from the, the Zappa band, Frank Zappa. And he said, uh, this, this guy has left the band, Frank, Frank Zappa's band. And he said, it's a really incredible, adventurous guitar player, you know. And Steve comes in and rehearsed with us. And I, I was just amazed by what he could do. You know, it's just, well, bloody hell. You know, playing a guitar like this, you know. Yeah. 
I, I remember telling my mum and dad that they came over to see me that year and uh, say, like, they thought this guitar player came in. He plays guitar like a piano. You know, I remember saying that to me. What do you like a piano? He doesn't, he doesn't go like this like I do. He goes like this. So it's just amazing. So anyway, after he'd done an audition with us, he was definitely in. You know, he was so different. And uh, Steve said to me, I don't play like Ingvars. I know you don't play like Ingvars. You play like Steve. Yes. That's who you are. And the I remember the first night he played with us, he was so damn nervous. He had his manager with him, but he was like sweating bullets, you know. Oh, geez. He was like, oh, oh, God, oh, God, you know. And she said to him, Steve, you're Steve, come on. Don't be so silly, you know, you're not a baby. Get out there, play. And he played fucking right. He played fucking right. And he went, wow, what's this? We're watching a different guitar player. It's not, it's not Ingvay, but what a guitar player. What a songwriter, too. Me and him got it so well. Um, it, was, um, it was a little eye-opener for him. Good old Steve. And look, he went on to better things, too. It seemed like uh, Alcatraz was a stepping stone for, for guitar players. <laughs> because <laughs> they had great grounding great grounding yeah i mean it's um it's such a shame but i knew he would leave because he was so different now honestly i could speak to you all day about your, your wonderful career but it'd be nice to hear about what, what's going on now the Graham bonnet band i mean you released an album last year day out in nowhere which got so many great reviews i've got a couple here just classic rock louder said sonic sonic boom of a voice remains intact giant sounding instrumentation and thought-provoking songs metal gods tv said your vocals soar majestically over the finest of classic metal riffs it's a wondrous record some fantastic reviews so so talk to me about this album then graham yeah, I, I, I'm very proud of it. I think it's the best album the, the GB band, it's, uh, not the Bee Gees, the Graham Bonnet band. GB, BG. It's there from the beginning. BG, GB. I, I think this one we've done, this is the third one. And uh, uh, Conrad Pesonado, he, he's our guitar player and also produces the album. Uh, I mean, he's great. He's really good. He knows my voice inside out. And so um, have the right microphone, everything for what comes out of here, you know, and I've always, over the years, it's always been hard for uh, producers or engineers to find the right microphone for me. And um, okay. this time, you know, don't ask me the serial number, I can't remember it for years. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, a good microphone. But over the years, you know, I've had some, I remember one day when I was, you know, in the marbles, me and my cousin, I was recording something and I was in the middle of a verse or whatever, and the engineer came downstairs and said, what, what, what did you hit? He said, he said you bust the microphone. Well, I mean, anything. <laughs> I'd broken something inside the microphone. With wow. The little, the little metal, metal strip. Yep. It snapped. <laughs> in this mic. I don't know what kind of mic it was. No idea. But he said, he said, listen, he said, come listen. I got part of the verse, and then boom, gone. And um, so, Conrad's very off on that, and he's got he knows microphones and gear and all that inside there. He's a guitar, you know what can I say? But uh, I think this this album we've just made, although I, the other ones are good too. I think they're really good. There's a subject matter. A lot of people said, "Well, it's nice to hear you write about uh, David's mom." That's one title called David's mom. Mm -hmm. uh, what the fuck is that? And it's about this. Experience I had when I was about seven years old. 
seeing this woman. Anyway, you have to listen to the album. And then, um, you know, I've written <laughs> some of the odd titles that people don't know what is that. You know, so, so it gets, it grabs your interest straight away. So you listen. So the first line should always be, you know, sort of ear catching, like, um, uh, I can't think of anything now. But uh, <laughs> so I was, the first line is always the hardest part. You know, um, I can't think of any particular uh, lyric, but it should always take you into like, oh, what happens next? And this is what uh, David's mind is you know. Uh, but it's about me being seven years old and going to going to see my friends. And David's mum says, um, oh, I'll take you, boys. I'll take you downtown. Oh, thanks. Yeah. And uh, what she did as she was getting ready to take us downtown. And uh, there she was. She came into the room. I was sitting there waiting for David. So well, my mum's going to take us. She's going to drive us into town. And his mum, he left, and then his mum comes in. We're in I, I will never forget this. She was very slim, very, uh, short, cropped, black hair, very slim, and she had this black dress on. I've got you already, haven't I? <laughs> 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 comes in. She was very cockney. All right, Brian. Um, and she says, just a minute, I've got to get ready. And on, on one of the chairs by the uh, fireplace, we're hanging these black silk stockings. And so, yeah. So she picked them up <laughs> and she slammed them on and talking to me as she put them on. And I'm going, frozen. I thought I just died. <laughs> but that was my first experience as a seven or eight year old kid. Uh, a weird feeling that I didn't, I couldn't understand. But I remember putting them on and stepping the garter into place, and it's just and it's David's mum. <laughs> David's mum. The song is about, and it's uh, stuff. very refreshing. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, well, it's brilliant to hear that you're still so so busy and uh, on the road and recording with with two different things on the go and different projects. Yeah. It's it's fantastic that you're still enjoying music and enjoying life and everything. Oh, yeah, I mean, this is uh, this is the best. I just love getting into the studio and making up new songs. There's nothing like it. You know, it's, um, it makes me uh, glad that I'm still alive, you know. Uh, I, um, yeah, you know, I, I lost my brother about uh, five years ago. He was only 70, younger than me now. He was only 73. And uh, it was Alzheimer's. And I don't want to go down that street, you know. I lost my dad at 92 with Alzheimer's. And it kind of runs in our family. And I just... Uh, now I'm 75, I'm going, oh, shit. Is it going to happen to me too? But I don't think so. I think I'm still pretty much, you know, sharp or whatever it is. I remember saying to my brother, the last time I saw Tony, uh, Bethany and I were in a pub in, in, uh, in England, and uh, Tony was there, and he had uh, one of my glasses case, one of the Ray-Bans cases, and I watched Tony trying to click the the lid together, you know, a little press stub thing. Yeah. And I thought, I'll take it up and then do it. But I thought, no, I won't. I'll let him struggle. And he kept on going. It took him, I don't know how many times before he actually went, Click. I said, you got it, Tony. You got it. At this point, he was almost losing it. You know, understanding yeah. what he was saying. He wasn't talking very much. Yeah. But um, I love him. 
And he was part of the image, the, the comeback hair thing. He was a 1950s teddy boy, you know. Oh, yeah. And he was my hero. And Absolutely. So my dad was 92 when he died. So, uh, But it's an awful, oh, awful disease. It, it just takes them. They're dead before they're dead. You know, they yeah. don't know you. And But Tony died, and uh, that just that destroyed me. It, it still does. Absolutely. It's a terrible thing. Absolutely terrible thing, as you it say. Well, well, Graham, thank you so much for your time and thanks for, for jumping out of the bath quickly and, and sitting in front of the, the screen and the camera for me and chatting and telling me some wonderful stories. Remember them all so well. It's fantastic to hear and all these incredible things that you've done in your career. It's just been an absolute pleasure to sit with you. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. I'm listening out for the new album. There you go, the brilliant Graham Bonnet there. Please do check out his recent work with the Graham Bonnet Band. Give him a like or a follow on the socials as well, please. And that's pretty much it for this week's big interview show then. Again, thank you so much for listening. Make sure you subscribe to Vintage Rock Pod on your podcast app so that you get every single episode that comes out every single day. And if you can, leave a five-star review on the podcast app that you use and look for Vintage Rock Pod on YouTube as well. Anyway, I'll be back tomorrow with more on this day rock goodness. So until then, take care. to achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.